First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Salvation, redemption, incantation, incarnation, submission, sacredness, faith, covenant, grace, sin. These are some of the words, spiritual, theological, philosophical vocabulary that Unitarian Universalists have been pondering out loud for the past decade, maybe more, words we once condemned to semantic purgatory because we thought we'd outgrown them. We just didn't need them anymore. Mystery, magic, evil, mercy, spirit, Sabbath, worship, soul, brokenness, wholeness, holiness, God. There are many others. Through UUA programs like Soul Matters and Wellspring, and in many congregations just all on their own, in Sunday services, but more importantly, in small groups, we've been turning those old words inside out, shaking out their pockets to see what's still valuable in there. Words are playful. Words are holy. Words are hot potatoes sometimes, burning our mouths as we speak them, singeing our ears where they fall. I am so interested in the reclamation, the rehabilitation, the resurrection of old words, and not just words, but the power that infuses them. Some of these words are ones that some of us rejected at some point on our spiritual journey. We just drop them in the ditch as too hurtful too heavy, too worn out, too loaded, too churchy or preachy or pious or disingenuous. Some we outgrew, some never fit. But in recent years, we've been asking ourselves and each other if we're sure before we hit delete. And also asking, who gets to own these words anyway and what they represent? Is there any way we could take them back, hold them in a new light, own them on our own terms, pour new wine into those old skins? Who gets to say what salvation is with its root in salve, meaning health and healing, meaning well and whole? Who defines communion or covenant as anything except the ordinary daily human ways that we promise we give our word to travel together through this life side by side, hand in hand, mustering respect and love for each other and ourselves and for the holy, another banished word, for the holy. Communion is our common cause. So we're calling these words back from exile to see if there's anything they still need to say, anything that we can't say plainly and well without them. We're testing to see whether we can, in good faith as religious liberals, keep faith, keep grace, keep prayer, keep the spirit and the soul. I can remember my mother teaching me when I was very small how to polish silver, not that we had a lot of it, a dented sugar bowl, a gravy boat, some spoons, a little tray. They came out of the cabinet grimy with tarnish, and she showed me how to rub them with the flannel, turning them gently because old silver is so soft, it scratches. And I would think, what a waste of time. These things are so old-fashioned, so useless, so ugly and filthy, till all of a sudden, 
there they were in our hands, just sparkling, reflecting our faces. And I would beg to drink from that bowl and eat with that spoon. Six months later, we do it all again because these things were special. We didn't use them every day. We had Corel livingware. We had plastic. Some words are like silver. They're passed on through the family, and we're here just trying to get the tarnish off. One of the bravest and most loving and respectful questions that you'll ever hear in the hallways of a church like this, like yours, is, what are you talking about? When somebody tells you something about their God or their faith or a sin they've committed, their word, or the hell or hell on earth they're living in or grace, the most loving response you can offer is, what are you talking about? It's generous. It's courageous. Because what you mean by faith may be what I mean by hope, the slender thread that's holding me to this earth when the world is spinning. And I'm afraid I might let go. It is the very lifeline that anchors me to the will to keep on living. And what I mean by faith may be what you mean by shallow superstition at best. And at worst, a dangerous kind of mind control or glib denial of the facts. Your faith may not be my faith. And so... We clarify our terms, which is an act of courtesy, an act of co-creation. We agree to disagree on definitions and semantics, and we admit together laughing that so much conversation and certainly most preaching and even the whispering head to head, mouth to ear from the country of one pillow to another side by side in the intimate dark. All these ways of talking are really ways of dancing in a circle, this narrowing circle that orbits the thing itself, which can't be hold, held in words at all. All of it takes time and space and trust, which is why our way of doing religion can never be captured in a creed or an elevator speech or a brochure. Fluency needs space and time. I have no fear of language, of religious language. And I grew up in a church where the words often made no sense to me and could at times be hurtful. I grew up, as has every person in this room, the room where you all are, in a culture where the language sometimes makes no sense to us and can at times do damage. But I have no fear of words themselves, in and of themselves, only words that are weaponized, thrown around carelessly without examination and cross-examination. So I love Barry Moser's memory in the reading of all the salty, sexy, lusty language of his Southern relatives and how at some point, amazingly, as a white kid coming up, he did learn the difference, a stark, crucial difference between harmless profanity and lethal obscenity, and what it meant to hear the N-word from his own mother's mouth. I'm not scared of God talk, but I do know there are words, other words, that literally can kill. How do we learn to speak our own language? We say to children, Use your words when they're screaming and raging and rolling around on the floor. Use your words, we say coaxingly to children who are silent and sullen, who maybe are afraid of something. Use your words. 
we forget how hard it is. A few years ago, I was invited by a group of Unitarian humanists to give the first lecture in a year-long series on the continuing relevance of humanism to Unitarian Universalist identity. Their project was all about the historic emphasis in our movement on rational thought and reason, pragmatism, intellectual rigor. It was at Uni the Unitarian Society in Minneapolis, the very flagship of ethical humanism. And I was so honored to be asked but I have to admit, my heart sank a little when they sent the title for my talk, which was, If We're So Right, Why Are We So Few? We got along way better than I thought we would, even though during the response time afterwards, before I was even done, they had all lined up at the microphones to challenge everything I'd said. It was all good-natured, till one man, very thoughtful, visibly upset, said, I just wish you would use more accurate language, less ambiguous words. When you say soul and sacred and spirituality, all this fluffy stuff, I don't know what you're talking about. I wish you would choose concrete words with definitions everyone agrees to. That's fair, I said. Like what? And he was flustered for a moment, searching for his word in frustration. Finally, he said, I don't know, something more clear cut, empirical, easily defined, maybe a word more like love. And we just stood silent, staring at each other for a long moment, me on the stage, him at the mic, both of us kind of appalled at this absurdity while the whole room held its breath. And I thought, how? Can he define it? Love. And then his voice cracked and he just covered his eyes with his hand for a moment. And he said, all my life, he was maybe 70 years old, all my life, I have known that when some people say God, they mean what I mean when I say love. There is no word for what it is. So all my life, I've been running from it. And there were no more questions after that, except, of course, there were, there are, endlessly. The whole point of this shared faith of ours is living the questions, living into them within and out loud together. It's a miracle to me that we communicate at all, that we humans have invented in such a short time these symbolic noises, these markings on the page to name that which is inside us and beyond us and offer it across the chasm of our separateness. It is one thing and miracle enough to make words to stand for objects in the world. Stone, house, dog, food, atom, ion, ion, molecule, mouse. It's one thing to label the material world and it is something else to try to talk honestly, intelligently about those things which are not things, which are ineffable, unspeakable, but which are, in fact, the surest thing we know sometimes. Sorrows, dreams, fears, faith, doubt, intimations of the holy, glimmers of hope. It's like grasping at light. Conveniently, confusingly, we are miraculously multilingual. 
almost from our birth. We're fluent both in metaphorical language and in literal concrete speech. And every day I wish I had a traveler's dictionary that I could just pull out and consult just to be sure, especially in situations like this Sunday morning, that I'm saying what I mean or hearing what you meant, even if it's spoken in my native tongue. What words can hold all the things that matter but are not matter? Our happiness, our apprehension, our anxiety, our gratitude, our grief, our reverence. What are the thousand names of God? Adrian Rich, a poet, speaks, spoke in a prose essay about poetry. She was writing about art, but she could have been speaking about religious vocabulary. She said, forms, colors, sensuous relationship, rhythms, textures, tones, transmutations of energy, all of this belongs to the natural world. To touch their power, humans had to name them. Whorl, branch, rift, stipple, crust, cone, striation, froth, sponge, flake, fringe, gully rut, tuft, grain, bunch, slime, scale, spine, streak, globe. Over so many millennia, so many cultures, humans have made words to celebrate, to ward off evil, to nourish the memory, to conjure a desired visitation. The revolutionary artist, she says, the relayer of possibility, speaks always in opposition to technocratic society's hatred of multiformity, hatred of the natural world and the body, hatred of darkness and women and disobedience. The revolutionary poet, wordmonger, loves people, rivers, creatures, trees, is not ashamed of any of these loves, and for them conjures language that is public, intimate, terrifying, beloved. Words, she says, can't free us from the struggle for existence, but they can uncover desires and appetites buried under the accumulating emergencies of our lives, the fabricated wants and needs we have had urged on us and accepted as our own. Words remind us of our need. We're learning as Unitarian Universalists languages of reverence. Learning, for example, the subtle difference between saying, I believe, and I believe in. Both are beautiful beginnings, but they end maybe in different places. We're learning that a statement like, I have faith, tells us pretty much nothing and makes the word itself a little suspect, like a smokescreen. But to say, I have faith in something or in somebody is different. I am faithful to something. There's a nuance there that maybe can't redeem a tired word, a lazy word, but it helps. A religious educator I know, raised UU, told me, I find it so interesting that UUs have such an allergy to the word faith when our whole religion is about learning to be a faithful people, faithful to each other, to our promises, to our children. We are learning always to be brave and kind. We're learning that when somebody tells you that their pronouns are they, them, the grammar gods are not gonna strike us dead. 
I'm the child of an English teacher. My dad taught eighth grade English all my life. Those gods won't strike us dead. And it is, in fact, proper and correct to evolve the first person plural in this way and multiple ways and thus evolve our love, our capacity to know each other. Words work for us, not the other way around. In so many traditions, including Christianity and Judaism, so many creation stories, the world is made with words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and darkness was over the surface of everything. And the spirit of God hovered over the water and God said, said in words, let's have light. And there it was. And God said further, let's have sky and dry ground and ocean and let's have sun and moon and stars. God said in words, let there be fishes and animals. And thus it was, and it was good. Why? Because, says the Bible, God said so. In making the story, the storytellers gave to God the power that was actually theirs. It's ours to create the world by naming it to make a story by telling it, to understand a thing, even a com complicated thing, by speaking it. I remember hearing those, that story, creation story, in Sunday school, this sparse mystical story, a weird story aligned in some kind of way with the actual formation of the planet and all life on it. I remember feeling awe when they told me this story, but not when they told me other less elegant stories about what all God went on to say. I didn't like the little comic speech bubble that came out of the burning bush or out of the clouds giving terrible orders to Noah or interrogating Elijah in the cave or hollering at Moses on Mount Sinai or lecturing Mary through his angel agent on what was about to happen to her body and not with her consent. Those all seemed like too literal, like advertising copy. The stories were always better as poetry, as mystery, as metaphor, not this lead-footed prose trying so hard to convince my mind of what my heart already knew. Most of you know I live in St. Paul here, next door to a person who's about 14 months old. He has no words yet, no English words. But all day long now, he babbles and sings in his Babylonian, Bulgarian baby talk. It's the music I dance to right now. And the poem Louise read to us reminds me of him. A baby is singing in the morning before anybody is up in the house. Before he's decided which of all the languages he will speak, he's trying the sounds of his own voice in first light. He hears the man come up the street collecting bottles ahead of the garbage truck. He hears the shriek of the glass. It is like the vessels of creation breaking in God's hands. He hears the wind, and in the wind, every, every word he'll ever say, and what will stay unsaid. This is the way we awaken every day. And then he remembers he's alone, and he cries for us. Use your words, the language you knew before you could talk that spoke to you and through you of sadness and comfort and wonder and loneliness and salvation and redemption, contrition and mother's milk, belonging, brokenness, and God. 
What words would we not want to claim, not need, if we could get the tarnish off? So I'll tell you one more story. There was a man who was dying, lifelong Unitarian in the first church I served. He was an atheist, geologist, empirical humanist, scientist, Unitarian, brilliant, cranky, deeply kind underneath. He was a singer, I remember, a tenor in the choir. And he used to say, you know what? As long as it's in Latin, as long as it's in German, I don't care what God Bach believed in. In the hospital, as he died, to my surprise, he asked to hear the 23rd Psalm. He smiled weakly and said, I bet you never knew I was a Christian after all. And it was a joke. But instead of getting the joke and resting in the joke, I just barged right in there. This was many years ago. I was tone deaf to mystery and metaphor. And I said to the poor guy, well, you know, John, it's not really a Christian verse. It comes from the Hebrew Bible before the birth of Jesus. It was a Jewish text, actually. And he breathed a deep sigh, the sigh of somebody with no time to waste, the sigh of somebody thinking, mm, I wish I weren't dying now. But at least I take consolation in the knowledge that when I'm dead, I won't have to suffer the ministrations of pedantic little pastors like this one. He sighed impatiently and said softly, I know where it comes from, and I don't care where it comes from. It comes from where I come from and from where I'm going. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to hear it. Chastened. I began, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. He didn't believe a word of that, but he believed in it. He dwelt inside it somehow, in the rock-solid mystery, underneath and within and in spite of all these imperfect words. He was keeping faith, keeping solace, keeping this old song, and was in a way there like the baby in the palm. He hears the wind and in it, every word he'll ever say and what will stay unsaid. He stops to listen to the silent and sings to it, to the way the body addresses the soul, lending it shape, lending it comfort and sorrow. What I love about that poem, about the baby singing is the very last line. He remembers he's alone and cries for us. Because what else are words for but to cry out to each other across our loneliness, our differences, our samenesses, our awkwardness, our tribalness? We reach for any good word we can possibly get. And some of them are ancient, holy words, archaic, tarnished, not accurate, not literal, not scientific, not really efficient. But sometimes they're everlastingly true. And when we don't understand or we misunderstand, we bless each other with the response that is a holy gift of love. Friend, I don't know what you're talking about. Please tell me what you mean. For just a few moments here, without any words, let's hold silence together. <laughs> 